What's up, Spell Singers? My name is Gary and John Wells. I'm Drew Flynn. And I'm Corey Janabagian. And this is Untap, Upkeep, Drink. Beer up. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Untap, Upkeep, Drink. Today is the first episode of Brewers Week. Yeah, yo. So this week, over the next five days, we're going to have five episodes, and we're, each episode we're going to cover a slightly different topic, if not just an entirely different one. Uh, at the end of the week, we're going to have uh, an episode where we're talking about homebrewing, and in that effect, we actually have a homebrew that we've made, and we're going to be trying it out for the first time Whoa. on Friday. Ooh, this week's all about the beers, baby. Yeah, we jam-packed it. Usually we go light on the beer and heavy on the magic. This time we're going heavy on the beer. And still heavy on the magic. <laughs> Where we can, for sure. But the last episode is going to be all about beer. So to start off the week, we're going to be explaining sort of different types of beers, how they're made, regional kind of um, intricacies of where these beers come from, as well as we're going to uh, we're going to introduce a new couple uh, statistics that we might start talking about on this podcast. And tagged along with that. Our deck tech for today is going to be a mill strategy deck in Commander. It's going to be Fibble Thip the Lost. Yeah, this is the deck that I made because I opened my mouth, basically. <laughs> Pretty much. Yep. <laughs> Promptly shoved foot inside. <laughs> so to start out, we're doing, this episode, we're doing light beers. So we're going we're gonna to start light and go heavy, heavy, heavy throughout the week. Uh, before we get into this discussion on light beer and start talking about some of these metrics we've discovered will help us uh, better represent all the beers we review. Let's get to the beers we've got for the show. I'm drinking the St. Pauli Girl from St. Pauli Burrell. It looks, it's just a lager. St. Pauli Girl Lager, 4.9% ABV and 18 IBUs. The color is unlisted, but it's a very, very golden wheat color, super light, completely translucent. Yeah, so the St. Pauli Girls, one, probably one of the first beers, one of the nicer beers that I've had. That, it, that's it, one it that holds, Corey and I got into a long time ago. It this holds a special place. Yeah, this episode has a lot of classics. It's got a what we could only describe as a little bit of a skunky nose smell. Uh, it goes down kind of bitter, a little bit hoppy, but m- mostly wheat. It's a little bit, it's not quite as cold as I'd like it. But it, it seems carbonated, even though it doesn't have a ton of head on it. Yeah, it's been a while since I've actually had this. So it tastes a bit different than I remember. Uh, it definitely has the more European flavor of the lagers, yeah. not the American lagers. Yeah, it's really, really sweet, and I like it. But it is funky. It's it's definitely skunky. <laughs> when, when we cracked it, the whole room smelled like it. <laughs> you can tell immediately. So I'm rocking the, the Lev Golden Lion Pilsner-style lager. So this bottle's super dope. It's got a big old line on it, but it's a 4.8% Czech beer. The IBUs were unlisted, so it's probably pretty low. It's got it's got a nice amber color, a little bit of head, still bubbling. It's got some good aromas, some nice malts coming through. That is a lot bitter than I thought it was going to be, especially coming off the St. Pauli's Girl. Yeah, this one's a lot darker, a little more orange. You get a lot of the, just your standard lager flavor right at the beginning, and then it just fades into some real bitter notes. Whoa, this one's weird. Yeah. I like it. It's almost got like an orange peel kind of bitter, but 
the wheat, like malty wheat flavors are kind of subdued. I, I, it's super refreshing. It's really crisp. Uh, the bitterness tastes less hoppy and more like a a rindy kind of bitter to me. Yeah, it's a different kind. Yeah, the smell is almost a little bit like spiced. Yeah. Yeah, there's a little bit of, of bitterness that kind of lingers afterwards. Yeah, just just a touch. Yeah, see, these ones were almost near the bottom shelf, and I was like, oh, I don't know. But I saw these labels, and I was just like, dude, these Lev beers. <laughs> i got to grab a couple for the cast. They're too cool. Yeah, and it uh, doesn't disappoint. Yeah, I mean, it's solid. Again, it, it is a European lager. It has a sweetness to it compared to what an American lager would taste like. Yeah, I don't know if I've had a lot of Czech beers, but I like this one. Okay, Drew, what do you got? Corey's very excited about this one. We've, oh, got, we've only said this name, what, four times <laughs> on the podcast so far? Uh, it is from Margaritaville. Yeah. It is the Landshark. Landshark. My favorite beer of all time. <laughs> it is I've an never had it. island-style lager. It is crisp. It is refreshing. It is the perfect summer beer. What's the ABV on this one? 4.6, and I could not find the IBUs. I can't imagine any of these are super high. No. They're, they're light beers. They're infinitely sessionable. Honestly, there's there's not really much to the Land Shark. It is it reminds me more of a cerveza than like a, an American lager. It's so good. Yeah, I agree. It's it's more on the sweeter side. It's much better ice ice the cold. Legendary Land Shark. <laughs> I still remember the the first time having one of these. We were hanging out at my friend Megan's house in Wyoming. She brought a six pack. And I just started cracking them, and I couldn't yeah. get enough. And I was like, "Oh, this—I is, mean, this beer is great. This beer is super smooth, super sweet, and it's like these other two beers that we have, except it has none of that funk. It's yeah. just clean, crisp. I think that's where a lot of people who like Miller and Coors and stuff like that, when they go to the, you know, the German beers and stuff, they're like, oh, it's skunky, it's weird. This has that clean kind of more American refined." Yeah, and I guess I taste that it. might be a, a downer for some people that it's it is kind of generic, but I don't know. Thing. I love it. I could drink that literally all day. All right, now that we've talked about those beers, let's talk about just beers in general. So I think Gary and talked about it earlier, but we're gonna start using some weird terms in this episode, and we got all of them from craftbeer.com. If you guys have any questions about beer at all, go check this website out because it is amazing. Extensive. Yeah, it's a wealth of knowledge yeah. that people have pooled together. They're working together. It's like a collaborative effort. Uh, just people who love craft beer, they're super passionate about it and they want other people to have as much information. Uh, it's a, they've got like a, a craft beer study guide so you can learn all that you can. And that's where we got a lot of this information. Yeah, Drew and I fell down the rabbit hole for hours <laughs> just looking at all these beers. Yeah. So the three stats that we're actually going to be looking at are the IBUs, which we talk about every episode, uh, the BU to GU, which I'll explain in a second, and then the SRM values. Uh, so the IBUs is International Bitterness Units. Um, it is it is the alpha acid flavor that you get from hops after it's uh, been brewed in a beer. Like The longer it's boiling, the more bitter uh, notes are going to come through. So that's the reason why there's like time-sensitive windows for when you put in hops is because it changes... Uh, how much of these alpha acids are in the beer. And that's the way that we actually measure uh, the bitterness is using those alpha acids. Yeah, so one way to just remember is that the the higher this number is, the more bitter a beer is. Right. That's just the most straightforward way to look at it. And the idea that it is more bitter is kind of a frustrating thing to me just because the next stat, the BU to GU, which is your bitterness units to your gravity units, and gravity units are the amount of sugars that you have in there. And so when you take this ratio... 
it gives you like what the actual profile of the beer is. Yeah. And if it's below 0.5, it's going to be more sweet. And if it's above 0.5, it's going to be more hoppy or more bitter. Yeah. So the scale goes from, I think it goes from zero to one and a one is incredibly bitter. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And entirely. a zero has zero bitterness at all. It is just sweet. Yeah. But this is like the, the reason why I think this is such an important status because it explains the reason why a stout can have such high IBUs, but still not just be like completely bitter. Like it does have a lot of hop characteristics to it, but it doesn't taste as bitter as what an IPA will because it also has those sugars to balance it out. Yeah. And the last number we're going to talk about is actually the first one that we're going to introduce here. It's the SRM, which is the standard reference method, which is basically the way that we can characterize the colors of our beer, um, which is why we're going to use it first here because we're starting on light beers. And so the SRM runs from one all the way up to 50. And really quickly, I'll run through what they've categorized these numbers as. So one to 1.5 is very light. Two to three is straw. Four is pale. Five to six is gold. Seven is light amber. Eight is amber. Nine is medium amber. 10 through 12 is copper garnet. 13 to 15 is light brown. 16 through 17 is either brown reddish or brown chestnut brown. 18 to 24 is dark brown. 25 to 39 is very dark. And anything above 40 is black. So this is just a a helpful way for you to kind of run through the numbers on how light the coloring of your beer is going to be. Yeah. And Gary and I have a joke kind of when it comes to dark beers, which is how can you tell like what is darker than other? And it's basically just like, well, if I hold it up to the light, can I see through it? Just <laughs> like, ah, that's probably about a 41. <laughs> yeah. um, so craft beer has all this information and and more. Like they've got food pairings for beers or types of beer specifically, uh, the glassware you should use, serving temperature, uh, country of origin, and just loads more quantitative stats like IBUs. They've got your ABV, like the range that uh, the beers are normally under, all of that sort of thing. There's so much information on there that we literally could just spend like oh, the rest of the week talking about them. Yeah, we just took a handful of the more common beers that all of us are more familiar with, but there's some crazy beers on that website, and there's just pages of information on there if you want to check it out. All right, Corey, why don't you start us off? So starting us off, we got your classic wheat beers. And for the American wheat, we have ranges listed from IBUs is usually like 10 to 35. The BU to GU is 0.28 to 0.62. So they're mostly on the sweeter side, but they can dive into the, the, the higher bitter end. And then the SRM is 2 to 10. So, so that's from straw to like medium amber. Yeah. So how we divided these beers is we chose, I think we chose like 9 or 10 as the cutoff point where everything below that is a quote unquote light beer. And then everything above that is a quote-unquote dark beer. Yeah, we right. used ambers as our cutting point. Yeah. And that, again, is our characterization, us here at the podcast. No? And yeah. it's mainly just because there's so many beers that are in the light-colored realm that yeah. it, it encompasses more than what the actual dark side of the beers do. So that just seemed like a good balance point to not have so much in one episode versus none in another. Yeah, and like I said, it goes from 2 to 10. So that's just wheat beers. They can range from all sorts of colors. So yeah. it's kind of hard to just narrow one thing down. So I think craftbeer.com has really good descriptions of all of these beers. And so instead of us just trying to come up with our own definitions, we're going to read a lot of what they have on their website. So if this sounds just textbooky, just bear with us. These are the experts. <laughs> they yeah. know what's up. Yeah, we'll try and summarize where we can, but some of them just have very good definitions. Yeah. So for wheat beers, they're typically lighter in appearance and they're made with either ale or lager yeast. And then the specifically American wheat beer is usually, or they can be brutally 30% malted wheat. 
And just like German Hefeweizens, they can be served unfiltered and have a really cloudy appearance. So if you ever see that, just know that it's just an unfiltered beer. It's not like a bad beer or anything. Right. So the clarity doesn't actually affect the color. The color can still be light, but not completely clear. Yeah. And then uh, these are usually hoppier than the German ones. The American weeds. Yeah. Sorry. So these are usually hoppier than the German ones. And on... If you remember a couple episodes, we've talked about beers that have sort of weird fruity notes to them, even though they aren't fruit beers. And these are just the esters in the beers. And a lot of the American wheat beers don't have these flavors. Yeah, that's that's a product of the yeast, which we'll talk about, I think, on the last episode of this week. Um, so look forward to that. But the yeast produces fruity esters yeah. uh, as like, basically when it's off-gassing. Uh, and that's where you get that. And you notice just in the beers that we have today... Uh, the land track that I have tastes different, and it is kind of a sweetness difference that you have. And the European-style beers actually have more of like a fruity smell to it than what the land shark does. Yeah, so if you ever had a beer and it tastes kind of like banana-y, that's just what we're talking about. It's it's really weird. Yeah, don't think your mouth is tricking you. There's, there's some chemicals in there that really taste that way. Yeah, and so with each of these beers, we've just listed an example that it's just either a beer that we like or that we've had on the show. All right now, we've got the Lagunitas Little Something Something. Not a bad beer at all. It's, yeah, I really like so. Lagunitas. All right, the next one we have is the lager, specifically the American lager. IBU's 5 to 15, uh, which probably is about where Landshark is. I was thinking it was somewhere around like 6 to 10. Yeah. Uh, low, BUGU low, low. is 0.13 to 0.31. So a lot of all sugars compared sweet. to yeah the bitterness to it. Um, and then SRM, 2 to 6, so from, from straw to gold. Um, and... As an example, I mean, just generic lagers, like American lagers. Yeah. Like, got Landshark here. Just any of the lagers that we have right now on the show, they're all yep. lagers, as it turns out. So American lagers uh, have basically no hop or malt character. They're very, very simple. Um, they're crisp, clean, and I think the most important part is that uh, American lagers are more carbonated than what European lagers are. To um, which, which I can attest. <laughs> <laughs> which kind of gives that crisp finish, but they just have the very simple characteristics of beers. There's not like any complex aromas or anything going on. Yeah, I think lagers, or at least these American type of lagers, are probably one of the most common types of beers that you can ever find in a bar. It's just like Drew saying, Landshark, you got like Bud Light and Coors, like all of those are just lagers, just American yeah. lagers. And honestly, all three of these beers are a good example of, you know, kind of generic lagers two of which are from out of country and one from in so if you do a little experimenting yeah it's easy to see the differences yeah uh the next type we've got on this list is blonde ales we're looking at ibus of 15 to 25 so a little more bitter uh but the bugu stays at 0.33 to 0.45 so for the most part they're still on the sweeter side um and we're looking at an srm of three to seven so still quite light these are one of the most approachable styles. They're golden or blonde, uh, and they're just easy drinking, visually appealing, very clear, crisp beers. They don't have super dominating malt or hop characters. Um, craftbeer.com describes them as rounded and smooth and just kind of an American classic. So sometimes these are referred to as a golden ale instead of a blonde, but these both kind of fall into the same categories. Um, and they can have a lot of really cool like spices or honey and fruit added uh, that help ferment with the, the lager or ale yeast to give them their kind of classic sweeter flavors. These are some delicious beers. <laughs> uh, the example we have listed is the Brewer's Cabinet Tahoe beer, which is a blonde ale. 
Yeah, the Tahoe beer that Corey brought back. Yeah, it was really, really good. So the next one we got is the Pilsner. So we got the Bohemian-style Pilsner, which is an IBU of 30 to 45, a BU to GU of 0.68 to 0.80, so it's less sweet, more bitter, and then an SRM of 3 to 7. As a quick note, I think this is why when my wife and a couple of my friends introduced me to beers and I started drinking for the first time, they thought, okay, he doesn't like you know IPAs, so maybe we'll give him a Pilsner. And I didn't like that either because it still is higher end on that more bitter scale than sweet. I'm a sweet type of guy. <laughs> Same. So the Bohemian Pilsner is more has a slightly sweet flavor, and it mixes well with the malts that they use. So the hop bitterness is a, it's on the lower side, even though, like we said, the BU to GU is in the bitterness side. It's just, it relies more on the malt for the bitterness. And so the this style originated in 1842 with Pilsner originally indicating an appellation in the Czech Republic. We're focusing on the Bohemian style right now, and they have more of a hoppy bitterness as opposed to the, Amer- or the American or the German style Pilsners. And they're also uh, usually on the darker side than the other Pilsners. Like the, the beer I'm drinking right now, it's a Pilsner style lager, and it's the darkest one here. It's yeah. like an amber color. And then the example that we have is the Bohemian Brewery Pilsner from Bohemian Brewery just here in Utah. It's really, really good. All right, the next one on the list is the Hef or the Hefeweizen. Um, specifically, we're looking at the German style Hefeweizen here. Uh, IBUs 10 to 15, the BU to GU is 0.21 to 0.27, so a lot more on the sweet side. I like that. Uh, this is one of Garian's favorite styles of beer. I yeah. Basically, if I get a half for the show, Garian's <laughs> probably going to be drinking it. Um, the SRM's between 3 to 9, so again, you start to get that gold and then into the ambers. So with Hefs, they're one of the few beer styles that actually need to be made with wheat specifically. That's not like just categorized as a, as a generic wheat beer. Um, so they need to be at least 50% malted wheat. With Hefeweizens, we get... A lot of the the yeasty aromas, you get that kind of like fruity or banana. Uh, we get clove, uh, and that's I think more indicative of the German styles than it is Americans. Um, but they just have like a massive flavor variety because people can put basically anything in them. Yeah, they're like we've said, they're one of the more common types of beer, especially European beers. Yeah, and they're so good. Uh, what's also great about them is that they are very sessionable. Again, they have a pretty low alcohol content, and they're just probably the most popular beer in the world i would guess at this point but they're definitely like in european styles as Corey said like one of the most popular yeah uh the example i have here is the hofbrau hef which is one of the first beers we actually had on the show i think it was episode one it was the one that i got for getting it was delicious hofbrau. It. <laughs> <laughs> all right so moving on we've got the triples which is a belgian style triple that's what we're going to focus on uh the ibus range from 20 to 45 so these are starting to get towards that bitter range the bugu still staying at 0.29 to 0.49 so they're going to keep it balanced uh and then the srm four to nine so these can sometimes break that sort of amber color um these the triples themselves are often complex with notable sweetness and that comes from the malts that they use as well as sometimes they'll put in some you know spicy flavors more like you know cloves and cardamom and things like that not you know spicy peppers or black pepper or anything like that um the the complexity they get is due to the yeast and so these are because we're talking about belgian style specifically these are generally a little less controlled brewing styles than like the american style and so they allow some of those yeast to sort of uh permutate 
wildly kind in a way and so they have a little more of these esters they come up with a little more interesting flavors than you'd get in a super high you know controlled brewery and you know coors or something like that um the abv is generally high in the triples but as craft beer states it's still approachable for many so it's not you know a stout these are most likely bottle conditioned in most cases where the yeast is left after fermentation so that it can continue carbonating. Yeah, you'll see that with a lot of home brews. And as for the other Belgian style beers, they're more similar to the Golden Strong Ales as opposed to the more similarly named doubles or quadruples. Which we'll talk about tomorrow. So, so weird. Yeah, but, we'll get into how weird these are and the naming yeah. conventions don't so, really make sense. So just remember that the triples are on the lighter side. And they're usually, yeah. Uh, we actually have had a triple on the show, but it was a uh, a strong dark triple, which <laughs> they I mean, people do whatever they want with the beer. And that was the uh, Golden Drock from the brewery, which name we cannot pronounce. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was that was a good beer too, but it, it was probably not the best example it, of a triple. It was not what I was expecting yeah. when we had it. Yeah. But I think that's a really good example of like this is a light beer, but it's a dark ale. How they made it, and so you can right. really just do whatever you want with beer. Beers. It's so broad of a spectrum that you could just literally make whatever you want. So the next one we've got is the Saison or Sison. I don't really know how to say Saison. it. Saison. Yeah. Saison. We got the Belgian style Saison, which is an IBU of 20 to 38, a BU to GU of 0.5 to 0.5. So it's <laughs> right there in the middle. You got sweet and bitter, but they're, they just coexist. And then an SRM of 4 to 14. So these ones can go a little on the darker side. So just like the triples, these are usually bottle conditioned. And I'm going to read this right from craftbeer.com because this is a really We can assume that everybody listening to this podcast is a little bit nerdy, so just bear with us. It says, Belgian-style saisons may have fruity, horsey, goaty, and or leather-like aromas and flavors. Andrew, you were talking a little bit ago about sometimes beers can have a sweaty socks flavor. And I think we've actually had a beer oh, that Garyan described as leathery. Yeah. And so I think that's just an interesting point that the aromas and weird things you can get from beers is just so vast. Yeah, it's Especially more like when you're, yeah, when you're drinking it and you also are kind of smelling it. You know, not like any of us know what leather or sweaty socks necessarily taste like, but it's just sort of reminiscent of what you get when you smell those things. I mean, you guys just don't go and chew on leather? Not, not often. <laughs> not anymore. I mean, you seem to know what the sweaty sock, you are immediately keen on that sweaty hey, sock. Man, I played football in high school. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I think that's probably from sort of the wild nature of how saisons are made, right? They they get a lot of these wild yeasts during the fermentation, and so sometimes you get some crazy flavors. Yeah, and I think the and whole like sense. the smells horsey and goaty is the reason why uh, they're part of the farmhouse ales. Like, there's <laughs> three or four different types yeah. of beers that are categorized in as farmhouse ales, and saison I think is the most common of them. Yeah, it's definitely the only one that I recognize, but they're they're usually have some spice flavors to them and then like drew saying they're part of the farmhouse ales which basically just used to mean a summertime beer in belgium but now they just make them all year round because they're so damn good and then a lot of the saisons that i remember having have been on more on the sour side which is my challenge to all you viewers is to take two bottles of a saison put one in the fridge get it nice and cold and leave the other room temperature like they do in germany and try both of them and see what flavors yeah, I bet come out in that warm one. Flavor yeah. profiles you can get. Yeah. <clears throat> so the example we got for the saison is a is the Boulevard Brewing Tank Seven. 
was a really good one. It was a really good one. All right, so the next one we have here is the American Pale Ale, the APA. Uh, IBUs 30 to 50, beauty GU 0.68 to 1.0. So this is right on that bitter man. Oh, yeah. 100% bitter sometimes. Uh, SRM values between 6 and 14, so now we start to get into those like darker amber colors. Uh, so APAs are generally characterized by the use of the American hops that are used in it. So we get like floral, fruity, citrus-like, and piney. Uh, smells and flavors to them, and yeah. Gary and you always just hate the the pine trees. I mean, I love the smell of pine trees. It's just that you don't that want coating bitter. Yeah, yeah. So they have a nice medium body to them uh, that has that toasted malty kind of flavor, uh, and it's one of the best beers to just pair along with basically any food. It is so kind of palate cleansing. To I was it. say it itself is a palate cleanser. So yeah, yeah, and you might think that because these are so bitter, they don't work with that. But it just it's a refreshing kind of bitterness yeah. to it. Yeah, and uh, craft beer says that the uh, the American pale ale's affinity to food can be attributed to the simplicity of its ingredients, which includes a toasty pale malt, a really clean yeast, and the counterbalance of the American hops, just to tease out the flavor or cleanse the palate, preparing you for another bite. Uh, Ooh, so. The uh, example we have here is the Park City APA, which is a bad example because it was not a great one. But instead, I'd like to use Deschutes Brewery's Mirapon, which is an American pale ale. Mirapon yeah, I don't so want to throw stuff onto our outline here, but I had a beer just the other day. It's the Roja uh, Black Porch Pale Ale. Also really good. Uh, pretty hoppy, but it's you know it's a little more balanced. So if you want, you want a more mellow uh, APA, try that one first maybe uh so the last little guy we have on this list here is the ipa which is the indian pale ale today specifically we're going to talk about the american ipa which is a little confusing um but the ibus are you know quite high 50 to 70 and the bugu 0.83 to 0.93 which kind of surprises me because the pale ales can just go all the way up to one where the ipas apparently in general don't go quite as high uh but the srm is from six to 14 so these while being extremely bitter are also going to be pretty light in color um it's generally characterized by floral fruity and citrus notes as well as pine or resin type hop flavors and i think it's that resin kind of like sap flavor that gets a lot of people it just kind of coats the tongue yeah it can be a little overpowering yeah but the but to to those of you who like them that's just the most refreshing thing you can have um so these these types of beers are all about hops and bitterness and they just have these really really floral strong but great smells um, and these are the most entered category at the Great American Beer Festival. And uh, as we can see with this craft beer kind of resurgence, it makes sense. That's what people are going for. IPAs are some of the more popular craft They're beer. They're the hot beer right now. Yeah, I think if you say craft beer, people immediately think IPAs. Yeah, when you find people who like to drink a whole lot of beer, a lot of times it's like the really simple lagers, you know, the Coors and the yeah, Millers and the shit. Yeah, if you're drinking in large shit. quantities. Uh, but anybody else who ventures out there, generally, they're, you know, their favorites are these IPAs. They're really crisp and refreshing. Like we said, they pair with food really well. Um, and we've got a couple really good examples here. So I put the Melvin 2x4 double IPA, which... I'm not Double. really an IPA guy. I like them. They're just too much sometimes. But for whatever reason, 
the Melvin 2x4 is my favorite IPA, even though it's a double IPA. It's really strong, but it's so good. Yeah, and to kind of add to that, the two that I put on here, the first one is the Lagunitas Super Cluster Ale, which was the one that was citra hopped mega ale. <laughs> uh, and what they mean by that is that it's an imperial IPA, so which means it's going to have a higher alcohol content, but and they're usually stronger. But that was a really was good beer. Say, wasn't that one like 9 or 10%? Or something, something like that, yeah. yeah it was, but yeah, it was really good. And then higher side. the other one, uh, Corey, you didn't get to try this one, but it was the Founders Brewing Company's Barrel Runner. Uh, oh, yeah. This was a rum barrel aged mosaic hop ale, which again, Ooh. this was an imperial IPA. If you're looking for an IPA, this was not the one. But if you're looking for a new IPA that maybe tingles a few other taste buds, this was a crazy good beer. Yeah, this is the one that I traded Gary in for. Yeah. And I, I think we should shout out to Hazy IPAs, which are, I think mm-hmm. they're a newer kid on the block, but they're just... They've got more citrusy notes in addition to the bitter, bitterness yeah, notes, so they're a lot like a easier little, to drink. I would guess, we don't have this information re- at the ready, but I would guess they're probably a little lower on the BUGU as well, like kind of a little more of a balance. You know? Yeah. Uh, delicious, yeah. All right. So those are the, the light beers, or at least what we're calling light beers. I'm sure that you could throw in a bunch more. I mean, obviously there's some on craftbeer.com that we're just glancing over there's here. There's so many beer yeah, I'm There's sure like 200 the, beer styles or something like that that they talk about well and as you can see all these things fall within a range so you might find some of the beers we talked about that fall out of what we're considering light there might be stuff that falls into light but yeah the example that we gave for the triple was actually a dark beer by the color but it is characterized as a more lighter beer generally yeah all right boys we've had a chance to sip on these drinks we've had some lagers speaking of light beers (laughs) what do you guys think so every time i've gone for a drink of this saint Pauli girl the first thing is just when we say skunky, we, I, I personally don't necessarily mean like uh, it's gone bad. Like it, it literally is reminiscent of like skunk or, you know, weed a little bit. You know, it's like kind of like an over, I don't know, rotten malt kind of. Yeah, it's it's one of those weird smells that you it you know it smells bad or weird, but you you kind of like smelling it because it's just so weird. It's like the smell of gasoline. You're just like, yeah. this is, I don't, I hate this, but I also I, like I'll it. be honest, I don't like the smell. Every time I reach in for it, I'm like, oh God. But the taste is, you get none of it. It's pretty bitter. It does have just like that lingering hop at the end. Uh, but overall, I mean, it's a pretty sweet, carbonated, uh, sessionable little lager. Yeah, the smell... Not a fan of it at all. Yeah, I don't think taste, I'd have more of them just because of the smell. Yeah, the taste is a lot fruitier than uh, like an American lager. Uh, just has that sweetness to it. And then, again, that hop just kind of hangs out for a while. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy the disparity between the skunk smell and then just the sweetness. The yeah, flavor, someone yeah. was like, do you want to have this? And I just smelled it. I probably knew. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just one of those things that is completely different from yeah. what you'd expect. And then, Corey, you've got the... I've got the, the Pilsner-style... Lager from Lev Golden Lion. It's a really weird brewery, but it's it's Czech, and it's it's really good. Like we were saying earlier, this one it's on the darker side, so you get a lot of that malt character, but then you still get a lot of sweetness. It smells good. It's really smooth. I think what's interesting is that it is a Pilsner style lager. Yeah, so that's. We kind of touched on this, but you could just mix sort of styles all together and do crazy things with beer. And I think that's one of the best parts of it. Yeah. I don't remember back to the beginning of the episode here when we talked about Pilsners, but Pilsners, are used, they have a specific malt that they use. That one definitely has a much stronger malt flavor, the Lev. Um, 
I would say for sure it's lower on the BUGU. It's pretty sweet, almost uh, spiced. Yeah, it's it's just when we talk about European beers, especially Belgian beers, not that this one is, but they have a lot of funk going on. I think yeah. this one lines up really well with that one. It's yeah, got some funk, infinitely but it's, better on the nose. But it's, it's got, got a maltiness nice malt body, sweet, but it yeah. actually finishes very light. Yeah. Yep. And the last one we have here is the Margaritaville Landshark. Woo! I mean, to me, it sure is like a, a light lager. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, there's not really anything like, whoa, this is the craziest beer I've ever had. It's just, it's so easy to drink. It's so sweet. It's beautiful looking. I love the bottles because they're clear. Actually, I don't think it's as sweet as St. Pauli Girl. I think that it is kind of overpowered by going back and forth between these beers. It's very muted, but again, it just has all of the, like, classic beer flavors, but just kind of toned down significantly, especially the hop flavors, like barely there at all. Yeah, it's infinitely sessionable, as we like to say. Yeah, going between St. Pauli Girl and the Land Shark, I think the St. Pauli Girl, like you said, I think it probably does have more sugar to it, but I think it has way more bitter, so it probably falls further up the BUGU scale, because I get a lot more of that lingering hop, and the Land Shark is just sweet. And just, I mean, it's really light, so it's not like drinking, you know, like a, a a soda or anything like that. It's very clean and crisp. I mean, I could definitely see, see Corey smashing about twelve of those. Yeah, those are good. Perfect as summer beer. Yeah, those, I like those a lot. So, speaking of getting smashed, <laughs> we've got a deck tech to talk about on the end of this episode. We're still going to do some magic, what? and today we decided to recruit the old Drewster. What are we doing? No, no not that. Drewster name. the that Rooster. Is the shittiest fucking. <laughs> Still the shittiest nickname I've ever heard. All right, I won't, I won't I've, go there. I've heard a lot of shitty nicknames in my day. But let's give us a rundown. What what deck is this? So this is my Mibblethip. I like it's, it. It's hard to say. Just put Mill instead of the F, and you're there. Um, so it's using Fibblethip the Lost. So this is a mono blue deck. Fibblethip the Lost is one in a blue for a one one legendary creature homunculus. When Fibblethip enters the battlefield, draw a card. If he entered from your library or was cast from your library, draw two cards instead. When Fibblethip becomes the target of a spell, shuffle Fibblethip into its owner's library. So this card used to be a meme where he would just pop up on little cards or like in the random corner. And yeah, so he was on like a totally dozen cards lost. or something like yeah, that. I don't and, know. Was, and they, they finally gave him his own card and he's a legendary creature. <laughs> yeah, people have been asking for it for a long time and the wizards were just like, yeah, okay. Like and everyone's like, bet you won't. <laughs> they sure did. They did, and he's weird as hell. He's just the and cutest little homunculus. I think it's very reminiscent of why I made this deck in the first place. Because yep. we were at Warspark pre-release, and we were joking around. Uh, I think it was basically we were arguing about whether or not Fibblethip was even like playable. And I was like, he's totally playable. If I get him, you know, put him in my deck. And I don't know who it was. And they were just like, man, how funny it would be to get a commander deck based around him. And I was like, all right, if I pull him as my promo... I'll make a commander deck around it. I think Sean was talking about if he pulled a feather, he's going to make oh, right. That's what it was. a feather deck. And then you said, if I pull a Fibblethip, I'm going to make it. And we're just like, ooh, <laughs> like, I don't think you should. Yeah. And like Gary said, hold. open mouth, insert foot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this is a mill deck, but this is also just a toolbox deck. I call it that because there's a lot going on. Uh, if you have a strategy you like to use, I can probably do it with this deck. Tokens, mill, self-mill, uh, you like to draw cards. That's what the whole deck is based around. Uh, if you want to just one punch someone, like there's a way to do that here. I got a storm outlet. Like there's a lot going on here, all in the deck. Yeah, and I think that just says so much about mono blue, just yeah. in general, because it has so many options. Yeah. So 
with the mill strategy, uh, which it is a mill shell that benefits off of drawing cards, like I said, the, it's got classic mill cards like Curse of the Bloody Tome. So Crystal Bloody Tome is two and a blue for an enchantment. It's a curse. Enchant player. At the beginning of Enchanted Player's Upkeep, that player puts the top two cards of his or her library into his or her graveyard. So this kind of uh, illustrates that there's a lot of enchantments in the deck that are kind of based around this, this mill strategy. Um, I think a better one is Sphinx's Tutelage. For two and a blue, it's an enchantment. Whenever you draw a card, target opponent puts the top two cards of his or her library into his or her graveyard. If they're both non-land cards that share a color, repeat this process. And so if Fibbletip comes in, I'm drawing a card, forcing someone to mill, and it could just chain back and forth over and over again. It's really punishing against monocolored decks, um, but it also has an activated ability, five and a blue, draw a card, then discard a card. So I can draw a card off of this card alone if I have the mana for it. Yeah, so a lot of mill strategies, they use, need a lot of pieces mm -hmm. usually, and this is just one of those pieces that sort of s just functions on its own. Yeah, and the reason why I like this is just because, one, I'm an enchantment player, obviously, but uh, enchantments are hard to interact with, so having these is kind of a safer way to do it than having like a creature or anything like that. And then there's also just some recent powerhouses that have been added. Like the Bastard Fleet of Swaller. the Sea. <laughs> yeah. So Fleet Swaller, five blue blue for a 6-6 six, six creature. Fish, whenever it attacks, target player puts the top half of his or her library rounded up into his or her graveyard. I think the, the key word here is when it attacks. Yeah. Right. Not when it, it deals combat damage. It doesn't have to do anything. It just has no. to attack. Uh, and that just has a nice combo uh, with Frank Sanity for two and a blue. You enchant player at the beginning of each end step enchanted player puts the top x cards of his or her library into his or her graveyard where x is the number of cards put into that graveyard from anywhere this turn so whether that's them discarding milling uh creatures dying tokens even will go into the graveyard although i don't know if they count because they're not cards specifically but like there's a lot of ways that cards are going to enter the graveyard and it counts all of those so with fleet swallower put your top half of your library in oh end of turn put the rest of it yeah, so mill is either just gradual over time or it's these just big effects where you just ta get taken out immediately. Yeah. Just one-shotted. So while I was building this deck, uh, I kind of was talking to Corey about making this deck consistent and viable, and there was just not really a good way in Commander to make mill good. Yeah. And so basically a lot of the mill decks that I was saying that were like, that looked mildly successful were started to go into combos. Yep. And so, yes, this is also a combo deck. So we've got the Iso Reversal, which Ice Crown Scepter and Dramatic Reversal. Ice Crown Scepter, it's an, a two-drop artifact with imprint. When it enters battlefield, you may exile an instant card with converted mana cost two or less from your hand. You can pay two and tap it. You may copy the exiled card. If you do, you may cast the copy without paying its mana cost. And Dramatic Reversal is an instant for one in a blue, says untap all non-land permanents you control. So obviously this is a really easy way to make infinite mana and do a lot of infinite shenanigan loops. Yeah, and so if you just want one extra card to go along with that, I chose Gilded Lotus. So it's five generic mana. Uh, you tap, add three mana of any one color. And so that generates you net plus one mana. So I can just generate infinite mana by tapping Ice Crown Scepter just over and over again. It used to be insane before uh, Paradox Ender got banned. Oh yeah, it was even more then you could just basically cast your old deck and stuff. Yeah. Um, so that generates me infinite mana, but I need a way to win after that. So we've got Proteus Staff, uh, which is three generic for an artifact and has activated ability two and a blue, tap it, put target creature on the bottom of its owner's library. That creature's controller reveals cards from the top of his or her library until he or she reveals a creature card. The player puts that card into play and the rest on the bottom of his or her library in any order. Play this ability only anytime you could play sorcery. So most of this deck operates on my turn, so that last part doesn't really matter. But the idea is that I've got so few creatures in the deck that when I start chaining uh, Proteus Staff over and over again with Ice Crown Loop, then I can just chain Filbethip over and over again. I can just draw my entire deck. And if I've got things like Sphinx Tutelage or any of the other like mill cards that care about me drawing cards, then I just start to mill my opponents out. 
Uh, and so just keep going with the infinite mana. We've got capsize, which I can just lock out my opponents, basically just bounce all over stuff and they just don't get to play the game anymore. Uh, I got blue sun zenith, so I can just draw my entire deck and, and win with that sort of strategy. Or I can just, because it's targeting, I can uh, mill my opponent. Then there's keening stone and mind shrieker, which are just mana sinks, so I can just mill my opponents out that way. The other combo I have in here is, I think, my favorite combo. Uh, it's one that not a lot of people know about, I think. So it uses mirror and spy, banishing neck, and dark steel relic, or any... Cheerio. So Mirror and Spy is 2 and a blue for a creature drone. It's a 1-3 and has flying. It also has whenever you cast an artifact spell, you may untap target creature. So that combos really well with Banishing Knack, which is 1 blue for an instant. Until end of turn, target creature gains tap, return target non-land permanent to its owner's hand. So you cast Banishing Knack on Mirror and Spy, and then you play Dark Steel Relic, which is a zero drop just for an artifact. Dark Steel Relic is indestructible. And so if I have any uh, artifact like this out, then I can just bounce it over and over again with Mirror and Spy. And what that does is generates a new set of win conditions for me. It infinitely casts artifact spells, infinitely uh, generates artifact into the battlefield triggers. So an example of a way to utilize this is Psy Master Thopterus. For two and a blue, we've got a 1-4, Legendary Creature, Human Artificer. Whenever you cast an artifact spell, create a 1-1 Colorless Thopter Artifact Creature Token with Flying. So with this combo, I literally just generate infinite number of thopters or an arbitrarily high amount um and the other primary way to use this loop is using something like psi or another token generator with grinding station which is too generic for an artifact tap sacrifice an artifact target player puts the top three cards of his or her library into his or her graveyard again this is a mill deck that's kind of the whole point of it and whenever an artifact comes into play you may untap grinding station so if i have a token generator out then i make infinite number of tokens sack them it untaps itself and Again, I just mill it right now. Uh, if I am using the token strategy, however, I kind of need a way to get to the point that I can attack with. Yeah. You mean Mono Blue doesn't have a bunch of haste stuff? <laughs> Not usually, no. <laughs> uh, it does have a pseudo haste, which is just to take an extra turn. What? Uh, so the card I have here is Gonti's Ether Heart. And I didn't want like a, just a take an extra turn spell. But no, I wanted an artifact specifically. I wanted a way that I could keep the synergies of the deck going. So for six generic, it's a legendary artifact. When Gonti's Ether Heart or another artifact enters the battlefield under your control, you get two energy counters, which isn't something that we normally see that much in Commander. Yeah, energy counters are one of those mechanics that I would love for them to go back to, but it just doesn't have enough support right now to make viable strategies. So also just energy counters go on use, so they're a really hard thing to interact with at all. And so I think that it's kind of like one of those pseudo-parasitic mechanics in that if they're going to do it, they have to go back to Kaladesh and they have to like do an entire set based around it because just printing them... Again, it's kind of useless. Yeah. So it also has this other activated ability. Pay, I think it's eight, two, four, six, eight energy. Exile Conti's Ether Heart. Take an extra turn after this one. So it's a one-time extra turn. It's not like I can loop it a bunch of times. Um, and it requires all of the energy that you get off of uh, artifacts entering the battlefield. So again, you make a bunch of tokens. You're generating all of the energy. And then you sack You're Conti's. powering the heart. Yeah. You're getting rid of uh, Conti's Ether Heart. You exile, take an extra turn. And that's how you actually are able to win. So it is a combo deck, and it is a very kind I see, of I see a, a terrible word on this list here, Drew. There's a, a naughty word. There's tutors in this deck. What? Yes. You bastard, you. <laughs> Why am I a bastard? So Drew has been notorious about, you know, not necessarily hating tutors, but sort of feeling them as kind of a, <laughs> a cheap way to get good cards in your deck, right? So you don't often play them. Right. I, I usually avoid playing them in Commander. In other formats, you know, like... Oh, yeah, Tutor, modern. Yeah. Fuck you, buddy. Yeah. I'm going. Tutors are incredibly powerful. But while they represent potentially any card in your deck, specifically the black tutors, really, uh, they're usually just a way for a 
deck to get one specific card. Like your combo yeah. piece. And yeah. to me, that's very boring. And I think that it's kind of unfun because Commander, I mean, EDH is a 100 card singleton format, which means high variance to all of your games, right? Or at least it, there should be. This is part of the fun for me, and it's why I usually don't play tutors in my decks. Being However, able to have a new game each time you play. Yes, exactly. Like the, the experience is novel basically every time you play the deck. Yeah, I think it makes the game better, but it doesn't necessarily make your deck better yeah. right. not having them. And so this is a toolbox deck. It is trying to do a lot of things. It has depending on what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Depending on basically what's in your opening seven, yeah. you can do any number of things, right? Uh, it is an artifact heavy deck, so I do have a few artifact tutors. So the best one is probably fabricate two in a blue for sorcery. Search your library for an artifact card, reveal it, put it in your hand, then shelf your library. That's just like actual tutor. Um, but what I really like is specific cards like uh, reshape. Because reshape for X blue blue, you get a sorcery as an additional cost to play reshape, sacrifice an artifact. I'm going to have loads of artifacts if I make tokens or whatever. It doesn't matter. Search your library for an artifact card with converted mana cost X or less and put it into play. And so that's the key on that is to put it into play. So if I need something and I need it now, then I can get it. Uh, so there's 22 artifacts in the deck. Uh, and then we also have Artificer's Intuition and Acquire I Like because... I get to steal something from my opponent's deck and put it into play. And it is five mana. But at the same time, everyone has a Sol Ring. Sol Ring is a very good card in the deck uh, because it generates mana. And with Ice Crown Scepter and, and Dramatic Reversal, that it pays for the, the cost to activate it. Yeah. Um, and then also, I just know that there are other combo decks that use some of the same pieces I do. So to steal that, one, disables their deck, and two, enables mine. Yeah, stealing someone's Aetherflex Reservoir is always a good thing. Yeah. Um, so... Artifices and Intuition is probably one that people are like, oh, why are you playing that? Uh, it only tutors for uh, zero drops and one drops. But there's nine cards in the deck that are zero or one drops uh, that are artifacts, which are all important to the deck strategy. Either ramp, or a combo piece, no max hand size, they protect me from milling out, like all of these things that I want in the deck. And also, if I'm getting zero drop, like that's literally the combo piece I need for my loop. The next one I have is kind of following the same theme, right? I'm doing artifact-specific tutors because I, I want things that are limited in their scope. I don't want to just be able to get anything because then I'll probably only get one thing, as ironic as that is. Um, so we've got the transmute spells. Um, they These are converted mana cost-specific spells. So I'll read Dizzy Spell, which is the one drop. So it's one blue for an instant. Target creature gets minus three, minus zero until end of turn. That's not a great effect on its own, especially in Commander. Uh, but it has transmute for one blue, blue. You discard this card. Search your library for a card with the same converted mana cost as this card. Reveal it, put it in your hand, then shuffle your library afterwards. And you can only play this as a sorcery. So I can transmute to get a one drop with Dizzy Spell. Or I can get a two drop with Muddle the Mixture, which is probably the most powerful one just because it's also a counter spell attached to it. Yeah, I think transmute is a really cool mechanic that they should go back to because it's just really dope. Yeah, and then I've got Drift of Phantasms, uh, which I guess if I need a blocker, the one bad part about Drift of Phantasms is that if I am using Proteus Staff, I'll <laughs> chain it out eventually, uh, which is not great, but if I can chain it back in, then I can use it as a as a spell again. So, uh, Dizzy Spell finds 10 spells, Muddle the Mixture finds 15 spells, including X cost of cards. Remember, if there's X in its mana cost, it doesn't count unless zero. it's on the stack, yeah. so it counts as zero, exactly. Um, and two of the two drops are Artifact Tutors. Uh, Drift of Phantasms Gets me 20 spells, which includes Laboratory Maniac, which, again, this deck can self-mill. So Lab Man, I guess I'll read in case people don't know, which would be surprising at this point. We've talked about it several times. Uh, two and a blue for Creature Human Wizard. If you draw a card while your library has no cards in it, you win the game instead. Um, so if I cast Blue Sun Zenith and mill myself out or whatever happens to be, there's a way for me to win the game from that. It's one of those kill on sight, 
win con cards. Yeah. Um, so Mystical Tutor and Merchant Scroll would be great in this deck. And so those are blue tutors that allow me to fight instants, which is really important because Banishing Knack and Dramatic Reversal, two parts of different combos, are instants. And so they would be great, but I, again, I would only put those cards in as extra copies of those cards. Right. Right. Like, even though they can find se- several other, you know, an infinite amount, basically, of other spells that I could put in the deck, they're only going to find one thing. Basically, what you're saying is you've restricted yourself because of the way you want to play it, not because your deck would not be stronger, because it clearly would probably be stronger. You'd have twice as likely chance of getting yeah. to your combo pieces. Yeah. yeah. And more, more than that is that it enables me to find uh, the other combo if the first one gets blown up. Right. So I'm yeah. not just stuck in one. I think you can look at it as like, this is happening in the game. I'm going to tutor for this piece to try and save myself instead of, oh, I got my combo. I'm going to tutor for dramatic reversal and win yeah. every game. So it's just more virtual way to So play. if someone were to go and build this deck and wanted it to be stronger, some of these things are good additions. But if you want it to be a less linear way of playing the deck, limiting yeah. yourself in this way creates some more. Yeah, like this deck, like I said, it is a toolbox deck. But yeah. that also means that there's higher variance to this than even just normal EDH decks because of the variance of the ways to win. Right. For better or for worse. <laughs> yep. Um, just Your wins are more so, spectacular. So on here, Drew, you've got the God Hand turn two <laughs> yeah, kill so there's combo. an awesome turn two kill combo in the deck that I found. I was actually just goldfishing it, uh, and so I was just seeing how some practice drops go, and I was like, man, I could play basically my whole hand in just one turn. Uh, so you need the Isochron Scepter and Dramatic Reversal, so you have, you know, your loop there. Uh, your Soul Ring, which gives you two colorless mana. Uh, Star Compass, which enters tap. It's two mana, uh, and it taps for a colored mana. So this is one of the important parts of the deck is that I need colored mana in order to cast spells, obviously, but in order to make loops go off. Um, then Mind Streaker, which is really a card that you only see in mill decks and probably only Super see in combos. Super sick art, though. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's one in a blue for a 1-1 one, one creature spirit bird with flying. You can pay two and activates his ability. Target player puts a top card of his or library into his or her graveyard. My tree gets plus X plus X until end of training where X is that card's converted mana cost. Yeah, so this is also the the one punch creature in the deck. One, it's got flying, it's got nice evasion, and it can just get arbitrarily large however big, you know, you want to mill somebody. Yeah, I mean, if you probably mill somebody even for just like 10 or 20 cards, they're probably going to die if you swing at them. Well, that's the thing is that you target somebody else and mill them out and then you kill someone else with mind trigger <laughs> well and what's really good about them is you don't have to tap them so this is yeah as soon as and he comes out you're going the most important part about this card specifically is that it is just a mana seek and i can just yeah. put in as much as i want um so you need one other card you technically don't need a seventh card in this hand but you need an island you have so to you have your mulligan to your god <laughs> you, you can yeah you get two shots at it yeah, yeah. so three you need an island because you need your, your colored mana to start things off uh just because of Mind Shrieker specifically. And then uh, your seventh card could be an island. It'll make you know the thought process behind how to do everything a lot easier. Uh, but turn one, put island, soul ring, use soul ring to play Star Compass. You don't care that comes in tap, turn one, you know, tap, mana rock is great. Uh, turn two, play Isochron Scepter, imprinting dramatic reversal. Then you activate the Iso Reversal loop, and that'll get you your infinite mana. Yeah, infinite blue mana because of Star Compass. Yep. Uh, and then you play Mind Shrieker. And you have infinite mana, so you just mill everyone out with your infinite mana. Hot tips here, guys. When the blue player plays an island into a soul ring, into a star compass on turn one, don't fucking turn away from that guy, because you're about well, to if lose. If anyone plays two mana rocks on turn... <laughs> like this, like I said, this is the god hand. Like, you have to yeah. have the perfect setup for it. I, yeah. I guess, alternatively, you could replace Mind Streaker with Blue Sun Zenith, because, again, it's just infinite mana means infinite card draw. 
uh, and you just draw your deck, except for like the last card. I mean, you could draw the last card, but then you need to play Labman. Lab, yeah. Blue Sun Zenith is then going to shuffle back into your library. You can draw that with any of the other cards that you have in your hand now. And guess what? You win. You win. Yeah, or, if you, you know, if, play your commander. <laughs> if you see any Thrasios combo decks, this is usually how they win. They make infinite mana and then they blue sun zenith shit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's 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 tried and true. <laughs> yeah. So that is the deck. You can win on turn two. It is a combo deck. There is mill all around it, inside of it, upside of it. I don't think I ever want, of it. I think it is the upside of it is that it's not like a normal deck. Yeah. Right? It is a mill deck. We've been wanting to build a mill deck for ages. And we always thought it had to be black blue. Basically, you have to run Phoenix is what kind of the idea. And I guess if we're not looking at combo, it's probably the right way to go. But if you're looking at combo, like why pollute your mana base? Yeah, just make it as refined and possible. yeah, straightforward. I've got it on deck stats on our uh, page there. Build it. This is the first deck I think that I spent over $100 on just because I was Damn. like, I need to be consistent with it, right? Like I've yeah. got Storm Loop in there. I've got uh, Brain Freeze because if you're going to Storm out in a mill deck you might as well do it it's right. all that flavor man yeah. uh i didn't put etherflux reservoir in it because that's not the way that i wanted this deck to play so gary and i came up with a bunch of questions to have ask you been you. peeking i mean These i was supposed to be just secret questions scroll down now just about <laughs> i'll like, scroll up i only saw the first one the strengths and weakness of the deck or like what made you choose this and stuff like that so let's dive into those yeah so the first one we got is what does the deck do well Besides millions, uh, I was going to say it mills people. That's, that's what it does. <laughs> Obviously. Um, so it is, I think, just like my favorite deck in that it does whatever I want it to do, right? Like I love tokens. I love enchantment-based strategies. And I can play both of those. I can make a, a shitload of tokens and just swing in on the next turn and kill people. I can mill them out. I, I think that what it does well is that it is able to effectively do a lot of things. The one thing it doesn't do is block. Yeah, I think just labeling this as a toolbox mill deck is a really good way to put it because you really can do a lot of stuff. And then so that just sort of leads into the next question is where does the deck suffer besides obvious mono blue things like ramp and uh, stuff uh, like that? Honestly, the ramp is fine. I think that, Yeah, I think your curve is really, really low too. Yeah, and like I said, I think just combat anything. Like if somebody has an aggressive deck, like I think that this deck would be really fun to play against Cranko in that I don't know how the matchup would be because I'm never blocking, right? Fibblethip, I, I guess I'm, I'm willing to play probably up to six on Fibblethip, but any more than that, and that's too much. The idea is just to get Fibblethip back into the library and get more cards off of him. Yeah, instead of like combat-focused creatures, you more of utility creatures that you can either just shuffle back into your deck and do stuff or just use them not for attacking or anything. Well, yeah, I think just... 20% of the creatures are combat-focused in that I think there's a total of like five or six creatures in the deck and right. one of them has to attack to do its thing. <laughs> Please follow <laughs> Yeah, like we've already talked about it, but yeah. Ah, yes. Yeah, 20% of my deck. <laughs> yes, 20% of my deck likes to attack. <laughs> Sorry, 20% of my creatures like to attack. Not my <laughs> whole deck. Um, when you sit down, do you feel like it's Arch Enemy? Because you're like, hey, I'm playing a mill deck. People are like, oh, hell no. I'm not getting milled. <laughs> I don't think it's Arch Enemy in the same way that other combo decks are because... They're, they look and they see Fibblethip and they're like, what the hell is going on here? You get targeted. Okay, the first time you put a curse on someone and you start to mill them out or you, I mean, I was going to say you put Fleet Swallower attacking someone. I mean, that, that that I understand. But like a lot of the time milling is targeted. And so you have to basically zero in on someone. And it's so inefficient to your win strategy to start milling everybody at the same time. So you basically have to zero in on someone. And then they usually ask for help. Because as soon as you start to have an effective mill going on, other players see that and like, 
oh, this deck is actually real. And that's yeah. that's when I get started to get targeted. It's but turn to me. Yeah, yeah, and it's never arch enemy from the start, but a lot of but times it it, 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 it'll get there. Yeah, I feel that. Um, do you want to keep Fibblethip as the commander, or do you want to switch him out for something else? I will always keep him as the commander because there are way more efficient creatures to be there. But Fibblethip, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the deck that is built around Fibblethip and drawing cards. So Just I think that it has to be there. Loops. Like, I could easily play Urza, and if I do, like, the yeah. the banishing knack loop, <laughs> not a, not a bad card. I literally just generate infinite mana, because I, they come in, I tap the yeah, artifact, just, and yeah. I get infinite blue mana. Yeah. And so it's just another way to, to get infinite mana. And Urza would be great in the 99. He'd be probably the best commander in this deck. Like, great, but that's not what the deck... That's just another Urza deck instead of yeah, a, yeah exactly a, a cool flavorful yeah it's just deck like it's it's supposed to be a meme deck it's supposed to be a joke but at the same time I'll kill you on turn two <laughs> like, <laughs> the joke is you're dead <laughs> but, <laughs> but no like, it's it's a fun deck because it doesn't have that like obvious power level yeah and you you have to work for it like I have in the deck box that I have it in I have a paper that is a sheet of instructions and like not instructions so much it's just like this is what's in the deck if you're tutoring this is what you're looking for these are the combos these are Dude, the way to I, win with the combos so cool just so that people anyone that picks up the deck that's tight can yeah. figure out how it works so you get your opening seven just like okay i, I have artifact matters i have drawing matters i like it, it yeah. doesn't look consistent at all and then you look at it and you're like oh okay i see where all the pieces these pieces are. fit yeah. together in this weird way we should all start doing that because i feel like every time we borrow a deck i'm like what do i do with this I'm like, oh, just play goblins it's just that's all you, you do swing. well i have a gamble what do i do uh. you gamble for perforos <laughs> and then you swing yeah. so speaking of power level uh one of my questions was what what is the win rate so far with the deck and what do you consider the power level to be at 10 being cedh i think it's one probably probably 35 percent of the games just because four person games yeah i think all of them but one was a four person game and Corey was in the one it was just me him and michael and i stomped their nuts with the boar god <laughs> and he says that but what happened is i milled michael out with frank sanity and fleece waller i think yeah and then Corey just kept ending the turn whenever i tried to do anything but in four player games i probably have like a 40 percent win percentage then that's pretty good yeah like it is good but the other ones, like, you just get targeted so hard that you can't do anything. I think a lot of the wins are attributed to the fact that people don't really see what's going on. They don't understand what's going on. And so they don't value it as highly as what they probably should. But, you know, that's that's on them and not on me. They just let you do your thing yeah, they're for like, just oh, it's too a, long. It's a well, it's just a lot of the cards just feel very un- underwhelming, right? Just like, like oh, mill oh, mil two cards. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. Mill two cards a turn, that's fine. You know, like, I'm sure I'll be able to, to get him back or whatever. And it's just like. And then, boom, mill 100 cards. Yeah, yeah. the, the <laughs> yeah. way that actually mill people out is, is very fast, but you got to start somewhere. It just takes a while to get yeah. to that point. Yeah. Um, so what do you consider the power level of the deck? Anywhere from a three <laughs> to, <laughs> to... Depending on the draw. To like probably a, a seven or an eight. Yeah, that's a pretty good range. I think most of our decks don't go past the eight range. Yeah. yeah. Even if we have a lot of combos like, and stuff. Obviously, like if you're looking at, at like the peak of what the deck does, it's a 10, right? Like I can literally just kill you on turn two turn two yeah but and even then i'm sure that there's probably a, a way to, that interacts with this that there may be a, a turn one right but and if i put like mana vault in or something like that then it's 100 just kill oh yeah that one. potential to get it just yeah. rockets like there's so much in the deck that's inconsistent that it, the the power range is just it varies so much so having the average power range fall somewhere around like a five or six is that okay with you do you do you plan to upgrade it to make it more competitive or is it just like the pet deck you want it to be as it is i don't know if it's like pet deck 
in that sense, but I, I want it to stay about where it is. I think like, it's not going to be like my favorite deck. I mean, it's not gonna be the deck I play the most. It's not my pet deck in that it, it just, it's a fun deck that does what it does. And I don't think that there's a reason to change it unless there's like a new card that's very similar, but more efficient. Like if it was instead of target player mills two on their upkeep, each player did. Yeah. Then I would swap that in. Yeah, I think you said it well when you're talking about Urza. Like you just put Urza as a commander, and it would just be ten times better. But yeah. you want to keep it your deck. Yeah. So, what's your favorite aspect, and what's your least favorite aspect of the deck? I think there my favorite aspect enough foils. <laughs> yeah. Right. True. <laughs> I mean, I think there's only one, and it's Fibbleth because <laughs> he's my pre-release promo. That's all you need. Uh, but I think my favorite aspect is that it is so unpredictable, and that each game, like I've said, you know, about the tutors, that I don't like commander decks that are just like okay like, hey, i'm gonna two for these three cards i'm gonna yeah. play them i'm gonna win i think that the variability of the deck is what my favorite thing is is that like depending on what i rip in my opening seven tells me how i'm gonna play that deck right like, oh i didn't play a token strategy last game yeah. but now we're going for it this like, game i could play six games and play a different strategy each time yeah. i think my least favorite thing the deck also tells me what i'm playing like right. I, I don't get to be going in and be like oh yeah i'm gonna do token strategy this time the deck says you're, you know, you're doing this specific mill strat with this combo, yeah. which is fine. And, you know, it, it's why the, why it's also my favorite thing, but I don't know. It's kind of a, a, a tough thing to, to say. You don't really have the choice. The most important question, is it fun to play? I think so. I, think I don't like it. <laughs> I, I don't, I think only one other person has actually played it. So I, I can't really gauge other people's opinion. I think it's fun just cause I'll play it tonight. It does all of the things I want. I mean, it's good. I don't like playing against it is what I'm saying. Right. As long as the deck is fun to play, to me, you got a 10 out of 10, Drew. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Like, play like, fucking fun cards. I think that this opened up my eyes to, one, play more tutors. I think that I'll probably end up playing more tutors in decks that I want to be more powerful. Yeah. I understand that the reason why I don't like tutors is because it makes decks more consistent. But if I want to make a more powerful deck, like my Storm yeah. deck, putting in tutors might actually be a good way to do it See because what, I want that power level to be there. I want it to be yeah. consistent. What I kind of did with mine is like, I have a demonic tutor, right? Not everybody has that. I have some really great tutors just in my collection and I wanted to use them. And so instead of saying, ah, you know, I don't want to make this deck linear. I'm not going to play my tutors. I put my tutors in so that the deck could still say powerful, but I don't have any infinite combos. I don't have a thing where it's like, as soon as I get demonic tutor, I pl I find this and play, you know, if I need creatures, I get creatures. If I need a sack outlet, I guess, you know, it's so I think it just depends on how you play. And I get like when you're trying to win, sometimes you're yeah. like, yeah, there's and, one thing I'm going to get every time. And that but, is why tutors are so powerful is because yeah. they find you whatever you need in that yeah. situation. Yeah. I think one of the best ways to upgrade your deck just overall is land bases. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. And just lowering your curve and then just adding tutors. Just like Drew's saying, just add that consistency. Yeah. But again, if you don't want that, don't add them. Like oh, if yeah. you want your deck to just be upgraded without having that uh, linear consistency, then land bases, like a great, place to start and then and if again, having fun is more important than winning every game then you may as well because yeah. you're going to have a lot of fun games for sure so i think that about wraps up our day one for this brewer's week on oh yeah we got light four beers more yeah we got a lot Ugh. of things in the works oh, yeah, my lots friends. of beers yeah. to drink is what we got. <laughs> basically he's just gonna be working his butt off for the next few go. days trying to make sure all of these episodes come out <laughs> are edited on time yeah you got a lot, of, a lot of work cut out for you. We'll get there. We'll make it happen. Yeah, it's going to be hectic. So thank you guys for listening. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this. Always drink responsible. We're not uh, sending any of you children off with these fantastical ideas of drinking beers. Drink as of age. Don't drink and drive. 
We yeah. can't. I honestly can't thought you were going to say, enough. don't want any little children going off milling people out. Mill responsibly, please. Yeah, so like, share, follow, yes, subscribe, please. all that good stuff. We're on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. Watch these videos so you can see all these super dope beers and super dope meal cards. Now, there's a lot that we talked about. There's more that we could have talked about, but so many more. God, there's so many beers out there, guys. Speaking of which, send us your favorites. We've gotten two or three requests already, so we're going to wrap up some beers, and hopefully we can get those out in the next few weeks, uh, and we'll shout out your name when we get them to our uh, fans and community. Yep, and if you want to find any of the decks that we talked about this week, we're on Dex Stats. Just look us up on Tap Up Keep Drink. Yeah, we got all the deck lists. You can peer over everything, recreate it, test it out. Yep, and like we always say on this show, guys... Have fun, but not too much.